0: Vice-Chancellor, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to talk about performance in terms of sustainability. The issue of sustainability in terms of buildings and cities. But I should make clear perhaps at the outset that as an architect, I can't separate performance in terms of a social agenda or the aesthetic dimension in the design of anything from performance in any other terms so it's a holistic approach to design I'm going to weave that into trends private passions which touch my life as a designer Uh, and I have a fascination for artists who by provocation or allegory can raise our awareness of issues and I introduced this really by a, a work by A past student of Oxford Uh, and this um, this work is a warehouse set in Kansas in real time of Kansas it's in the wheat belt and it's a container it contains black oil sticks black oil and the contents of this storage area Will provide enough black oil to be able to coat this agricultural building. And that, the life of that oil, is the life anticipated by one estimate of the oil resources that we currently have. And when the oil is used up, and we can see this man painting, the total complex will be black in 30 years' time. It will then expire after 24 hours. And the symbolism is that similarly, the agriculture will expire in the form that we know it because there will be no more fertilizers. Another artist, a young artist, two young artists, take the theme associated with oil in terms of climate change. And they See a world where Londoners adapted, I quote, because their text is part of the work, has adapted to rising water tables in radical ways. Managed flooding is now the name of the game, as is self-sufficiency in food. Central London is a network of rice paddies, and Londoners' diet is largely rice-based. If we uh, move across to the issue of energy, and... We look at the disparity between the energy consumption in terms of advanced uh, societies as opposed to emerging societies. We look at America and Japan and Europe, and if we then couple that with another major issue, and that is the um, the explosion of population, then what is interesting is the explosion of population occurs in those areas which currently consume the least area, the least energy. And in terms of Europe and Japan, it's a negative factor. The populations are actually shrinking. So there's a very close link between the energy that a society consumes and produces and the, and the birth rate in terms of stabling populi- population growth. But there are also other vital links. What is in many ways perhaps self-evident is that those societies which consume high quantities of energy have the greatest life expectancy, the minimum uh, level of infant mortality, uh, the greatest political freedom, and the greatest level of of enlightenment. So if we examine in terms of India just some of these uh, relationships and trends, uh, one project which involved dropping uh, water, diverting a river, dropping it one kilometer, and producing local power in a rural area had the potential, has the potential um, as a pilot project to change the lifestyle of the young girls in the community who instead of having to carry water, because the the power is there and the water is delivered at the source, so they're liberated in terms of being educated and schooled. The power also brings information through the medium of television to the family. But what starts off as a good news story is that through the medium of television, the family starts to discover that uh, in relative terms, they're poor compared with their opposite numbers in the city because they can earn three times the amount in the city, except in one part of Mumbai, which is so prosperous that the wage disparity is a factor of 10. In other words, if they go to a a part of Mumbai, they will earn 10 times as much because it's that much more prosperous. Just to give an idea of the size of the project, this is Hyde Park, and if I superimpose the site in Mumbai on Hyde Park um, and we go to the location, it's 175 hectares, Estimates 600,000, 1 million people. The density is 5,417. That is something like more than half a million people per square kilometre. That's 10 times the densest area in London, which is Kensington and Chelsea. But it's mostly, as you can see here, single story, except for one part which is ringed in yellow there. And if we look at that, that was something that the local authority built in an attempt to improve the working circumstances for this society, this, this area. But it was rejected, it's empty, it's not used. And one of the tasks in terms of our researching this project and trying to come up, trying to understand what makes this community tick and how design might respond to their, to their needs. This is the team, and I think both individuals, Narinda and Chris, both here this evening so what they did is in an endeavor to understand what lay behind the scenes they worked with the locals uh, here and and in the process discovered that this area recycles 80 percent of Mumbai's waste for reuse that it's a it's it's a very prosperous business this recycling industry statistically 1wc per 1400 people Estimated 15,000 single-room uh, factories, 90% black economy, and as I said before, very, very high earning capability. This is Narinda's sketch, which um, just gives a glimpse in terms of the philosophy uh, of trying to understand the factors that generate design. Um, and here, just taking a small portion of that community, the emphasis on the uh, activities. On the ground plane where the pottery here is made and then as we move across the front of that pottery factory will be a shop a display on the main street and then moving across to another part of the site here the schools and another pedestrian route and quite interestingly the only open spaces in this community are the school playgrounds the cemetery and the railway tracks so uh, so What was interesting was through this process, understanding that the kind of spaces that they need are horizontal spaces, which explains why those buildings that were produced in a way to improve the quality of life cannot work because it will not sustain the lifeblood of the community. Here's Narinda's sketch, which again gets behind the surface to try to understand the activities so that the solution when it's proposed, and obviously vitally the underground services, because essentially there's no main sewage or electrical distribution, although somehow magically there is an extraordinary standard of living within this community. So the individuals here, the potter, the weaver, they're named as individuals in this design response, which is essentially low rise but quite high density, so that's creating the public spaces. It's also a combination of a degree of industrialization and a sort of self-built, very, very traditional style um, of construction. And these units here, which have the little heart on them, um, is one exploration with the possibility of combining highly industrialized uh, core units that could create the, um, the kitchen, the kind of hub of the house, the ventilation, the heating, the cooling, um, the waste processing. And, um, and interestingly, in that society, the, the, the reality that somebody can produce a four-door saloon, the Tata Nano for less than 1,300 pounds, uh, gives validity in some ways to this concept. What is also fascinating is that a more basic form of this we're all already aware of. This is a place in the indoor. It was done by uh, a very distinguished architect, Doshi, and the idea is that these uh, heart units here, which are combination of toilet and kitchen, providing the basic facilities, once the foundations are in here, then that allows a degree of self-building and also self-expression. And this is an extraordinary community. So, in a way, this is not a new idea, but it's taking a, an existing concept, which also finds manifestation in, in other examples, and, and, and exploring its potential for, for local application. Just to summarize some of those trends, one, more than one-third of humanity is already living in slums. In excess of that, there is no sanitation, not sanitation in, in, in the sense that we might understand it. 25% without electricity, 17% without clean water and, uh, and adequate shelter. If you translate that into planets, the only reason that America can have a five-planet lifestyle or we in Europe can have a three-planet lifestyle is because that that population already on the move is consuming so much significant less energy. So how in terms of maintaining our own quality of life and accepting the absolute inevitability that the other one third of humanity will have a similar uh, level of life and, and have a one planet existence. I think that that is Uh, is an extraordinary challenge. And whatever the fuel of the future, the one thing I think you could say with absolute certainty is that we have to do more with less and nobody was more powerful in terms of invoking that than Buckminster Fuller starting in 1927 and I really bring him into this discourse because I was privileged uh, to work with him for the last 12 years of his life. And um, we did a, a number of potential, uh, we did a lot of explorations, potential projects. Uh, this was an autonomous house in 1982, which would be completely self-sufficient. And it's interesting that if I go back to, um, to my own roots in terms of the early days of the, uh, of the practice, in this master plan for Gomera in 1975 I was quite intrigued just going through our archives to find that every aspect of the zero carbon zero waste project Mazda which I'll conclude with this evening is here in this this project so this interest in sustainability is something that is in our terms very long-standing I learned a great deal more about Buckminster Fuller recently when uh, in a kind of homage um, to Bucky as he was affectionately known by most of us, um, recreated the car that he's designed between 1933 and 35. This is, three were made and this is car number four. And in the process of doing this and going back into its history, it's an extraordinary vehicle. Uh, it was designed in conjunction with the yacht designer, Starling Burgess, and it's a three-wheel vehicle. It will turn in its own lens, so it's very much adapted to uh, to the city. And um, if one looks at the origins of the car, then it's very easy to see that the Ford sedan of that period really replicates the horse and buggy. And buggy had a... a a close relationship with his great friend Henry Ford who was very sympathetic and said you can have any Ford part at one-third the cost so when you look at the design of the Dymaxion you realize that reversed it has the identical power unit transmission indeed all the components the wheels the steering wheel but the reality is that the Dymaxion is three times the volume, so it can take up to 11 people. It is the people mover decades ahead of its time. At an age when people were not worried about how much fuel or gasoline a car would consume, it was half the fuel consumption and significantly faster because of its streamlined form. So this whole thing of, of more with less, I remember Bucky saying, you know, compare the Great Atlantic Cable in the 19th century, which, uh, which was buried on the seabed. And he invoked the example of the satellite, two tons compared with 4,200, eight words a minute in the past, 60 million words uh, a minute here through the satellite and with the example of the iPhone. Or compare the computer, the, uh, this extraordinary computer, groundbreaking, shattering in 1946, weighing 30 tons, Compare that with an iPad, which is 680 grams, 4.0 million percent reduction, and an increase in performance from 385 to 21 billion, I mean a 5.6 billion percent increase. Or one of my own passions, which is cycling, and just comparing the Tour de France uh, of 1903 with the most recent. And here, interestingly, the dramatic increase in performance is less about the bicycle itself even though the bicycle is one-third the weight. It's very much about aerodynamics. It's about the way that the team works together. And um, I have another private passion which is cross-country skiing and what I never see in terms of a cross-country marathon which I do every year is this aerial view and if you zoom in you realize that given a headwind, headwind across a frozen uh, lake, that just like migrating birds, the pack assumes a streamlined form. And, um, and when that race takes you through a village, um, you suddenly realize there is no headwind, that those designers uh, of the houses and of the community had created a microclimate and buildings which, um, in an age before any, um, any technology in the way that we know it, but work, working in a very sophisticated way with the technology of their times, created highly insulated buildings, uh, splayed windows, which in, quite interestingly were the source of inspiration for Le Corbusier and the Ronchamp Chapel. So these buildings, again, like buildings in the desert that I'll be showing uh, shortly. Um, performance, again, in terms of something that uh, has captivated me and I have many hundreds of hours flying high-performance sailplanes which, um, which are powered by rising currents of air called thermals in the same way that soaring birds migrating. And I've occasionally found myself sharing the same... Uh, going round in circles and uh, and and seeing one of these huge birds, sort of sharing the same thermal. Quite interestingly, the performance of a um, of a sailplane is is higher than these 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 birds. Although the birds have, as I'll describe in other ways, a superior intelligence. Um, for example, the glider will travel if it has one kilometer of height, it will. Uh, in still air travels sixty kilometers, unlike this albatross going uh, twenty five kilometers across. This has a lot of relevance to the design of buildings uh, moving towards sustainability. what it's really telling you about that bird is that it 's fuel, which is flapping the wing or the Aircraft, the aerotow that will pull the glider up before it starts its epic journey, sometimes a thousand kilometers, is using all the forces of nature, those rising currents of wind, tailwinds, working in formation to reduce the drag, just like those uh, skiers or cyclists, uh, slope soaring, really working with, with, with nature, so that in the end they can achieve heroic performances with a minimum amount of energy. Uh, You can take that with this extraordinary bird, the bar-tailed godwit, which travels non-stop 11,000 kilometers. And just like the 747, when it's taking off, it's lumbering down its runway, very, very heavily laden, in the case of the bird with fat, in the case of the 747 with kerosene. And they're both taking advantage of the tailwinds, battering through headwinds to find those tailwinds. So again, working with nature. And um, I'd like to just touch briefly on a project which brings together the subject of birds, of flight, and of culture, which was recently unveiled, last week in fact. And this is the National Museum, which um, uh, which is a testimony really to the founder of the Emirates Uh, Sheikh Zayed and his um, almost like a first environmentalist noted for greening the desert but also his interest in the culture of the region in particular uh, falconry and um, and we married that with the age-old device of the wind tower but really using the wind tower in reverse and um, we use the wind tower in Mazdar, but this is a century tradition where you build the tower because the air aloft, you'll catch a gentle breeze. The floor of the desert can be dead still. That breeze is pushed into this tower, and it creates a cooling breeze, which makes you feel much, much more comfortable in the heat. We've reversed that, and we've created a tower which uses the thermal Uh, of, of, of flight and which if you imagine these things here they're catching the wind at the top but they're using the wind to pull out the air and deliberately taking these aerodynamic sails high so that they will absorb the heat of the Sun and they will create the warm air which will rise and here in this simulation you can see at the base of those towers are the galleries and air is pulled in, the air goes down through tubes below the level of the desert because below ground, like a cellar, it's cooler. So it cools the air which is pulled through. And there are different cycles, one cycle for summer and one cycle for winter. So the expression is symbolic of flight, these wings, but it's also very much about sustainability and moving to a zero energy concept here we're looking at the interior this is a simulation somewhere down on the left there you'll see the Sun coming up and going down it's over a 22-hour cycle so very very beautiful qualities of controlling that light so there's always this relationship of letting so much light to bring to life the display spaces uh, in the base of the building the galleries that will tell the story of the background and the heritage Um, and um, Again, I talked about the greening of the desert. The galleries are literally buried in a mound, and they're very much part of a garden, and this was an international competition. And we broke the rules by saying it's not just about the building, it's very much about the, 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 the garden, the setting, uh, the oasis. The, the two should really be in harmony uh, with each other. And in this uh, simulation, you can start to see the falcon the way in which the wings propel this bird by creating positive and negative air pressure in the same way that the wing of the museum, which is working environmentally, is doing exactly the same. I was fascinated by the work of Tennekes, who, um, with others, uh, examined ways in which you could compare the performance of flying insects with birds and with those big man-made birds and he established a very interesting trend line which demonstrated that outside of that trend line you would find things like gossamer condor you would find the dinosaurs of the air uh, and why they didn't survive he would also add probably Concord with its supersonic flight which in the end didn't follow the trend line, was exciting, but wasn't part of an enduring uh, story. And that fascinated me uh, in terms of doing something that we had never done before as a practice, and that was to go back in time and examine the performance of our own buildings. Um, And that's been a, a very, very interesting research project. And I tried to use that as a basis just to focus attention on uh, the issues of how, given a, a great infrastructure of um, suburban movement, given cities which will need to expand and be retrofitted in the pursuit of, uh, of a lower energy consumption, sustainability, and the many new cities which are being created by emerging economies, what lessons could one, could, could one learn? How could one, uh, as it were, point for the future? And so we developed this graph of of a a trend line and, and used as the base the energy requirements in terms of good practice and the building codes. So that's energy consumption rising on the left and area of the projects on the horizontal scale. And we looked at nine of our past projects, and I just highlight two of them because they both work with nature in the way that I've described. This is the Comets Bank headquarters, and these gardens which cascade up the building and become gathering points for the population, uh, the bank uh, employees who are able to gather there for breaks, they're part of the environmental lungs of the building. So this is perhaps the first not perhaps, it is the first green skyscraper and the Reichstag which is powered totally by sustainable um, energy uh, forms, this is biomass, photovoltaics, underground uh, lakes, very public buildings, so I was fascinated to see and, and hear that red line is our trend line and we are significantly ahead of the game in terms of the performance of those buildings. Relative to the codes of practice, best pra- practice, the Reichstag is improving by a factor of an excess of 50 percent, Commerzbank a staggering 70 percent. But then the challenge really is how do you get down to that bottom line? And in the case of the Masdar Institute, a building which is not just on the bottom line, zero carbon, which is currently ploughing back 60% of its own energy consumption back into the national grid in in Abu Dhabi. And as a starter for that, uh, and many individuals have said this in different ways, but essentially to look far ahead, you first have to look far back. And in terms of some of those cycles, I was fascinated And this is the first time really I've looked at this uh, myself. It's something that's been interesting me over a period of time with a very small group of researchers. And that is um, one of the um, emerging realities of the East overtaking the West, which might be a singular event to some of us, but for some people in China and that part of the world is like a repeat of the pattern and perhaps a return to the status quo because essentially the East overtook the West somewhere around 540 AD, and then that reversed itself in 1850, when Western Europe overtook China in manufacturing, and that is a manufacturing dominance which had been going on for 1,500 years. And it's quite interesting just to, uh, to note that at the moment, the biggest... Uh, The biggest manufacturer of solar panels in the world is China and they export 95% of the panels. And if, as an architect, you want to specify solar panels at the moment, it's very, very difficult because the demand far exceeds the supply. One or two other things, too, and that is that China is heading for a a kind of innovation society. Uh, I mean, in 2020, on current... Uh, on on a current pattern of spending. Uh, China will spend more on research and development uh, than the United States. In 2020, predicted growth of their network of high-speed rail, they will have more high-speed rail kilometers than the rest of the world put together. Um, So this extraordinary investment in infrastructure and the transfer of knowledge is something that we have seen absolutely firsthand in, hand uh, in our work on Beijing Airport, which is on an epic scale. I mean, just to superimpose that airport on top of the map of London, you realize just how large it is. But let's put it another way. Um, if you imagine terminals one, two, three, four, and the most recent five, and then imagine adding a sixth, that gives you the area of this building. It's absolutely awesome. But of course it's highly sustainable because it, it, it consumes far less energy and it's much more, uh, how can I say, it's much more friendly to use if you put it all under one roof and you have its internal train which can get you very, very easily from one end of the building to to the other. Perhaps another way of looking at some of those trends is the cyclical uh, wave where, um, where crisis um seems to run concurrently with investment and innovation which leads to investment in infrastructure and then that in turn informs the nature of the urban space and if we see those great kind of panics, Wall Street crashes, uh, the most recent uh, 2008 collapse and we look at the top which is prosperity, the bottom which is recession then the energy spikes, you start to see the cyclical thing around carbon. And quite interestingly, uh, up, to, uh, up to the uh, 19th century, it was essentially a wood-burning economy going back in time, which was 90% carbon. But as you move across, you're moving much more into 90% hydrogen. So you can see those spikes, and you can see the recurring waves of suburbanization and urbanization. Um, and the way in which the innovations of the high-speed train, the computers, the streamlined car, then you get into an explosion of roads, the rail networks decline, whether that's beaching here or the Highways Act of 1956 in the United States, which created this extraordinary 40,000 mile network of roads and very, very similar patterns of the decline of the inner city and the encouragement of the suburbs coming from different uh, political systems. In Europe from something much more socialist based and much more capitalist based in the United States, but the same effect. And we're now seeing through globalization the re re reemergence of the city. So in 2007, more people, that magic point where you cross the boundary, I think it was in May of that, of that year where then more people were in cities than in the suburbs and if one goes back and and you look at the um i have been involved in the design in 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 a prize awarded to uh solar initiatives in switzerland and this very ordinary looking house here through a combination of insulation and solar cells is generating 82 percent surplus energy Another way of looking at that is that it would power three electric cars for something around 12,000 kilometers annually. Um, But the problem is is that if you look at a building in isolation, even if that building is generating more energy than it consumes, it's still not sustainable. And the reason why is that in an industrialized society, it is the combination of the individual buildings and the transport of moving people that is accounting for the major uh, energy consumption, something like 70% in an industrialized society. And this graph is is just saying very, very simply that there is a relationship between density and energy consumption. So if you look at the cities which are highlighted, Detroit sprawls its low density, it sprawls into the landscape with roads going to endless suburbs. Um, if you look at a high-density European city, which is not driven by the motor car, but is traditional in the sense that it's, 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 it's a pedestrian, bicycle friendly, um, Copenhagen is twice the density of Detroit, but it's consuming one-tenth of the energy in gasoline. And as you move across higher density, Hong Kong and Manhattan, then those are really sustainable, given the mixture of mixed uses good public transport walking high density that's why Manhattan is such an extraordinary performer in terms of sustainability. Um, There's another way of looking at that this is Copenhagen here and if you compare that with the hundred largest metropolitan areas and those city centers combined with the outlying suburbs then compared with Copenhagen there's a massive hike in the consumption of of energy. And it's quite interesting to go back in time, around the turn of the century, the end of the 19th century, there were more electric cars on the roads of America than petrol-driven cars. And interestingly, in the heyday of the city in America, in the 20s, there were 1,200 separate electric streetcar systems, one electric trolley car for every 2,500 people. 80% use public transport. And it was a subsidiary of General Motors in the 50s that bought and burnt more than 100 electric traction systems in 45 cities. And it was also during this this particular period that there was a massive government injection in terms of funding a road network. And it's quite interesting that if we go back to that wave diagram, then it's no accident that we're now seeing that trend reversing itself, and huge investment in rail networks, and particularly in those emerging uh, economies. But I don't see the car as an enemy. I'm very much in uh, in the spirit of Roland Barthes, who you know, said that they were the equivalent of the great Gothic cathedrals, and this extraordinary car was a turning point in car design. So I think. The car will inevitably morph into something which will work much more harmoniously with the road networks and be, uh, and be more friendly. Um, if, if there's a reference to the great cathedrals, then in terms of one city in terminal decline, Detroit, and God here, according to the graffiti artists, has left, left Detroit. Um, then 30% of that inner city is literally being reclaimed by nature. I think that the average value of of, of a home in this area is something like $60,000. If we move to another, the the mega region, which also appeared on that trend chart, we see the relationship between Stanford, Hewlett-Packard, Apple, and others relative to the University and Google that marriage between the academic institution its innovation powering the industries this is also something which when I show Mazda uh, later is very much a, a model of of emulation so this is a different kind of um, more integrated higher density mixture of suburbia with industry with um, with academia and that $60,000 residential price here is translated into something like $1.6 million. And that's just the, uh, the average. But really, that model has to be called into question. And, um, and there is a thing about China. If you really want to see the future, then you go there and you see it emerging and this is the site of the world's biggest traffic jam which was in August 2010 this year and it's 60 miles long, it lasted for 11 days and it involved 10,000 trucks. Um, I think that myself, it's uh, merely a question of time before the the whole road system uh, becomes regulated. It's quite interesting that in terms of air traffic, when you had the explosion of mass air travel and you couple that on that uh, wavy line with the innovation of the computer and the jet engine, in the end, to be able to make those great circle routes work, you had to regulate it. So so essentially, uh, it's a combination of the pilot doing what he's told by air traffic control and relying on the devices within the cockpit. And of course, interestingly, all the technology is already in the car. And when I put this together for the, for the first time to look at it, um, I opened the pages of the Herald Tribune of that day, and I was absolutely amazed to see this article, which I promptly cut out and introduced after that uh, image where Google had test-driven seven cars a thousand miles without human intervention. And if you read this article, um, which goes on, that with minimum overseeing, 140,000, and this is a car, robot cars, um, with passengers negotiating to find, you know, their way through uh, off the autoroute and finally weaving through all the traffic in in, in San Francisco. So I think that there will be a point in the same way that we might look back at our cities and say, could you believe it? There was you know, open sewage in the streets once upon a time. I think that people will look back and say, you know, you'll never believe this, but people were hurtling along the motorways, and they were actually in charge of the vehicles. No wonder they were all smashing into each other. And uh, So, so you, could, you could take the infrastructures that exist, and you could really intensify it. You wouldn't be mindlessly building roads, and you'd be getting much, much more, literally more mileage uh, out of it, and greater safety. If that's one possibility around the suburban infrastructure, how do you look at expanding uh, an existing city? This is a project in Hong Kong. It's a competition, and it's generated by culture. And it's, a, again, it's an example of investment in infrastructure, in this case related to culture, uh, in an emerging East. Not that Hong Kong is emerging in that sense. It's emerged over a long period of time, but it is still an extraordinary growth story. This is the network of roads, and I'm just going to show one example of that big red line there, which is the avenue, which is the main, main street, and how, in terms of sustainability, and somehow identifying what the DNA of Hong Kong is, what makes that place special. So we start off with an examination of Nathan Road. You couldn't think of anything more evocative Uh, of that place and special to it. And then analyzing that in terms of what you perceive around the signs, um, the people, the traffic, uh, breaking that down, further analysis, uh, going behind those facades, finding that this is a layered uh, community different from many other cities that. Uh, that residential is sitting on top of offices, is sitting on top of retail and using that as a basis to then generate a new design. And here significantly you see that a lot of the the traffic is siphoned off below to improve the quality of the pedestrian experience at ground level and the way that culture is integrated into, into that matrix. And this we developed as a sustainable model, many computer studies. And here you can see that the green of the traffic is below the level of the the pedestrians. Um, I come to Mazda itself and I describe the challenge of creating a uh, zero-waste, zero-carbon community as the equivalent today of putting a man on the moon in the 60s. And there is quite an interesting ecological link because if Bucky Fuller was ahead of his time in terms of talking in 1951 about uh, spaceship Earth, um, then it was certainly the astronauts and their Russian equivalents, the cosmonauts, who really became the first environmentalists. And I remember with my colleague David Nelson, who's here, we went to uh, Energia, the uh, the people who put men in, in, in space. And I think it was their view for the first time of the planet and its fragility uh, that in turn was responsible for, uh, indirectly for that green uh, revolution, which is really, I think, uh, coming home. If we go to the desert, it's quite interesting that in the same way that penguins will huddle together for warmth, Um, And I see that Stefan is grinning because that was Stefan's kind of thing about the penguins. But I've taken it up here with the camels because the camels huddle together to keep cool because the temperature of the camel, as you can see here, is significantly less than the desert, uh, which is their their environment. So uh, how do we tap into the knowledge of... The waves of humanity who've tamed the desert in an age before you couldn't buy a cheap air conditioner and cheap gasoline and throw uh, energy at it mindlessly. How did they create communities, habitats outside and inside uh, that were pleasant? If you look at any of the traditional uh, settlements, and we looked at many from Yemen to Morocco, Arabia, um, they huddle together because by huddling together, they can create shade, they can create cool. Uh, the orientation is something that has evolved over time, so that it admits some sun it closes off against, uh, against the light and the heat. It uses evaporative cooling in terms of water, shade, colonnades, to bring down the temperature. And with a very um, a very sophisticated understanding that the radiant temperature, the temperature that we feel that makes us comfortable or not, is quite a sophisticated uh, um, mix. It, it, it's a blend. It's not about the air temperature, important though that might might be. Um, I talked about the wind towers which tap the prevailing breezes and pull cool air through. Here you can see them highlighted in this typical uh, vernacular, kind of architecture without architects, although undoubtedly very sophisticated architects who really knew what they were, uh, what they were doing. Here you can see our more com- sophisticated computer studies around that. And of course, once you go within the dwellings themselves, um, very, very elegant, sophisticated solutions to create privacy within this extreme density, very, very beautiful uh, and very comfortable uh, environments. And a little bit of repetition here, because this you can see, I would hope, immediately, the analogies with, uh, with the world of nature and those birds. Because here, what we're seeking to do in terms of today is to use the massing, the orientation, the shade, the insulation, the materials, um, and the way in which we control the environmental systems converting waste into energy, uh, all of those before you come to the red reduce the amount of energy which then we need to bring it up to an acceptable level of comfort today. So it is the essence of doing more with less and starting with the lessons of history. So if we look at central Abu Dhabi it's actually hotter than the desert. Why? Because of those areas of vast areas of reflective glass, because these are imports from a totally alien environment. They have nothing to do with the desert. The areas of, of black tarmac. So, these, this, this is, is totally uninhabitable space. It's more uninhabitable than the uh, desert itself. So, our starting point for Mazda was to learn from the cross-sections, the spaces, of those traditional dwellings above. The two images at the bottom are cross-sections through Mazda, showing a courtyard and a street. But what is significant is that there, are, is there is a world below that. In actual fact, this is slightly misleading because it suggests that this is dug in. It's not, it's actually built up off the, uh, off the desert floor. And there'll be versions of this moving on into the future which as cars become greener um, will be a street experience. So the podium is not absolutely critical to the long-term evolution of this project. And I would stress, and I cannot stress too strongly, that Mazda is an experiment. It's an ongoing experiment. It's an experiment within an experiment because it creates a, uh, an academic community around which a small mini city for 100,000 residents uh, grows. And the idea is that, is that it will be an incubator. It will, through innovation, create small enterprises all in the pursuit of sustainability. And this is a long-term project, so it's over a period of some 22 years, running up to 20, uh, 2018. And it is spawning pilot projects. Let's examine this. It is two walled cities. Not walled in the sense of being compound uh, compounds because, um, because it's permeable uh, and it has a total cross-section uh, of society. But walled in the sense that it's very compact and it's surrounded by areas which as in the past are about harvesting but not harvesting totally in terms of agriculture but harvesting energy. The orientation is critical in terms of its um, northwest southeast orientation. The car, conventionally in blue here, is kept, the conventional car is kept on the edges. There is a public transport system, a tram, which weaves through it. And then in this first phase, one of the experiments is a robot car, which has a certain familiar sound in terms of one of the predictions that I suggest in terms of the uh, robotic cars, which will um, be way beyond the experience of Mazda. Here you can see a cross section through one of those shaded uh, narrow streets and the world below with those uh, cars, the robot cars. And last week at the opening, I mean, we all went there in a little robot car, four, I mean, driverless. Um, and um, and there is a community, I mean, it's a cum- community community of a hundred people so it's already thriving with with lively uh, research projects it has as I've described the university commercial activities residential special economic zones those incubators of technology park entertainment leisure hotels Um, there is a green square or a park within one minutes walking distance those green spaces are very much about capturing the cool night winds and the warmer uh, desert winds uh, during the day. Um, And so it's very much about the environment. The first stage here, which is ringed there, um, is the result of a huge amount of modeling, wind tunnel models on the left, and a real, very large model on the right. Quite interesting, just as a totally unrelated aside but going back to that investment in infrastructure business enterprise this model as you can see very large if you look closely at it it's got every detail it's got every tree every car it's got every courtyard that needed to be made in a hurry there was no model maker in the world who had the capability the expertise to be able to make it in the time frame the only model maker was in Japan Uh, excuse me was in China Um, and because they had invested and that is a model making company five-story building totally I mean it's another kinda mini story in in itself but quite significant in the broader scheme of things standing back here you can see the totality of the eventual Mazda and you can see the harvesting areas around it the uh, the solar cells the reason that it's developing 60% more energy, which currently is being fed back into, um, into the national grid, is because it is a solar farm. It's a 10 megawatt. There's already 100 megawatt farm now uh, under realization in, in Abu Dhabi. And um, this diagram tells you why uh, those uh, solar panels um, are there. If you take a convenient meter, either a meter cube of water and drop it as hydroelectric, or a meter square of land to develop biomass, or a meter square to put wind turbines on, then you can see that in terms of the yield per year in kilowatt hours, the PV solar cells, still in their infancy, are way, way ahead. I mean, um, the, uh, the nearest competitor is a wind turbine. And a wind turbine in an urban context is delivering virtually nothing, and there's no wind in the desert. And it's interesting, but nobody talks, when they talk about pollution, nobody talks about visual pollution with wind turbines and farms. And if you see some of the horror stories in Spain and elsewhere, I think that's another, that's another story which questions the, uh, the performance of, of wind turbines. But um, the pilot projects Are absolutely fascinating I can't go through them all but let's just look at geothermal one of the projects underway is to take the technology which has been developed in that region for drilling into the desert floor to to extract oil take that technology and you put boreholes down two kilometers you'll be finding a water source at something like 90 degrees so you've got a 25% temperature differential. You can convert that heat into cooling, and that's another source of, of power, completely untapped. I mean, Iceland is an economy which is totally proof against fossil fuels in the future because it is a hydrogen um, and geothermal uh, e- economy. And it was no accident that last week that the president of Iceland was there at the officiating uh, ceremony for, for Mazdar. But it's not just about technical performance, uh, I mean it's very much about the cultural dimension and here on that project we've been working with an artist uh, skilled in interpreting the geometrical patterns behind uh, the traditional architecture of Islam and you can find that in here. These are the facades which are about the residential accommodation And again, you can see the layering, the protection. You can see the interpretation uh, of of those uh, arabesque uh, patterns. And and here in this image of a courtyard, you will see the the photovoltaic cells on the roof. You'll see the the patterns on uh, on the right-hand side there. And then uh, in the background, very high performance, uh, very much derived from space technology of creating cool surfaces, an extraordinary degree of insulation and and, and shading. Therefore, the the laboratories. And the laboratories are great consumers of energy. I mean, this is the most energy intensive kind of university because it's about these research laboratories, air conditioned, which are running over a 24 hour cycle. Here we look at some of the spaces, you can see the cooling water in the foreground. If we drop ourselves below this level, here you can see the PRTs, those robot cars. Um, Back at the level again, you can can see the wind tower, the base of the wind tower on the left there. It was fascinating that that was working incredibly well last week. I mean, You would go near it and you'd immediately have this cooling breeze, although the air was absolutely still uh, at the base. A typical street here and on the right our visualisation, uh, before this was even a building site. So, again, uh, how you anticipate in, in visual terms and explore and, and model, all very much a part of the story. And the lobbies are also working ecologically and also giving you access and permeability from one part to the other. Of course, if you go behind that facade, then this is the kind of student room that you'll find. And and in a way, triggered in part by this talk, I felt it was very, very important that we find out for ourselves how successful we've been in, um, in realizing the objectives behind those lessons from traditional architecture. And the felt temperature, using thermal imaging cameras, uh, the felt temperature, whether you feel comfortable or uncomfortable, is a very complex mix of the air movement, the relative humidity, the surface temperatures of the, uh, of the surfaces around you, and, and the air temperature. So here are our guys here. And interestingly, if I go back to our roots, we were doing environmental engineering in the 1960s, And we are rediscovering those roots. And we are now um, being much more comprehensive in our approach to design within our own practice. So we're being joined by colleagues that we've worked with over many years as structural engineers, environmental engineers. So in a way, we're very interestingly coming full cycle and taking responsibility for all aspects of of, of the design. just a result of some of those studies by those guys that you saw there. I mean, a car engine in the center is something like 55 uh, degrees centigrade. In the undercroft, 37. And if we make the comparison on a typical day between that street in the middle of Abu Dhabi and Mazdar City, just a short distance out from it, very, very interesting. I mean, the radiant felt temperature on that day is 52 degrees. If you go to Mazdar, it is a very comfortable 37 degrees, and and that's actually measuring it ourselves on site. Um, there it is. You can see the um, the sand-coloured, literally coloured colored by the sand of the region. You can see the academic institute, and you can see the wind tower. Now, Bucky in the forties came up with the idea of another kind of car, a car that would anticipate a a city of the future, quite small, compact, able to to traverse between cities. And so um, we had the idea, I suggested to a very, very small group that, that maybe we should just have a little, we should relax a little, we should design this car. Well, knowing what we know now about electric traction, each wheel is, is powered by its own individual motor. The technology exists to develop this further. So we produced this, this group, produced this film, which starts off in, um, in nearby Dubai. And here it's um, has certain affinities with Apple in terms of it's user-friendly, it's It's moving out, it's going through the traditional streets. Here it's going uh, through Dubai, it's probably being manually driven at this point. Um, It is the three-wheel concept, but when it gets onto the motorway system, it comes into autopilot, anticipating some of those trends that I talked about earlier. And for greater stability, the rear wheel extends to increase the uh, wheelbase. It's probably switched off two of its three engines and it's probably now being powered uh, by the rear. It's approaching here into Abu Dhabi, into an urban mode, it's shrinking itself. It's come up to our central markets project, another of our projects here which learns very much from the souks of the past. It's moved on from central markets and it's now on its way heading to Mazda. The interesting thing is that this car, when it arrives at Mazda, will not separate itself out like all the other cars and go into the car park because this car will be genuinely ecologically friendly, so it will be able to occupy the same area as the other cars things get a little bit ambiguous here because some of this film is simulated and some of it is actually for real because this is a real place with real uh, PRT cars and um, and the university which is now uh, thriving so uh, it comes in and it finds its uh, its docking bay so it's now charging itself up induction uh, charging this is That part was real there, that's the spiral staircase that takes you up to the uh, upper level, the shaded uh, street, moving along, seeing some of the spaces that I talked about coming inside the uh, student room here, moving down one of those narrow uh, shaded uh, streets, and you can see the facade uh, of the laboratories, the, uh, the institute. You see the wind tower here in the corner of that urban space, Moving across the knowledge center, we're now inside the knowledge center, and this is the laboratory that we talked about. Next comes the factory, which is to come, which is making some of those technologies, some of them which are not even envisaged um, now. And here, panning out, pulling away, and seeing this in the wider perspective of Abu Dhabi, very much about anticipating a future when they will not have the vast reserves which they currently have. and and anticipating one uh, of a number of, of initiatives for that future. Thank you.